My name is Lewis, and I'm an alcoholic. And I haven't had a drink since September the 5th, 1975. And for that, I am truly, truly grateful. My whole family is grateful. The Dallas Police Department is grateful. Uh, uh, and everyone that lives within a hundred miles of the Dallas Fort Worth International Airport is grateful. Had my first drink at the senior prom in Wagner, Oklahoma. Had my last drink 16 years later on an airplane on the way to treatment. My first drink consisted of two half a cups of homemade beer. And I'd like to take a minute or two and qualify and share with you about my last drunk. I, I'm an episodic. I'm a blackout drinker. I black out about the second drink when things begin to settle down and chill out. And any of you may have heard a tape that I could have made. It may have changed lately because I've been listening to my wife talk, and that's why I got my story from. Uh, uh, I, I do not remember any of this. Uh, it's all fabricated, but I kind of, you know, my wife helped me to put it together. Uh, now, uh, I, would, uh, I would drink about four times a year. Uh, my last three years of drinking, but every time I drank, I had to go to the hospital. Uh, I would it, I would do great for about three or four months, and then I would get off from work. Life was good, by the way. I never drank when things were going bad. I only drank when things were going good, and immediately they turned bad. Uh, <clears throat> I would take the money to the bank, and as I was leaving the bank, the voice would say to me, Lewis, you haven't had a drink in three months. Why don't you get a beer? And I said, oh, no, I can't drink. Uh, last time I drank, I almost lost my family. I almost lost my license. I almost, and the voice would say, well, what kind of an Oklahoma cowboy are you? They can't have a couple of beers, you know, and, and don't ever argue with the voice. They always win. <laughs> and I say, well, all right, I'll have a couple of beers. On the way to the liquor store, my part of Texas is dry, uh, the voice would say, well, Lewis, a big-time doctor like you can't go into the liquor store and buy two beers. You better get a six-pack. I said, all right. And I drive a little further and said, Lewis, you know Ed might come over, so you better get a case. I said, cool. <laughs> I drive a little further, and then the voice would tell me, you know, Lewis, when Ed gets to drinking that beer, he's going to go on some Jack Daniels black. I said, that's all right. I'll get a bottle of that. And he said, he'll probably bring his stuck-up wife Cynthia with him, and, and she only drinks divorcee. I said, well, I'll get a bottle of that. Then the boss said, boy, that's going to really make your wife angry by everybody else from booze and not buy her anything. I said, well, I'll get her a little bottle of champagne. Drive a little further, and the boss would say, now, you are the greatest fool in creation. You buying all these other people something to drink and don't buy yourself anything. Cool, I'll just get me a little bottle of John, you know, a little bottle of John and Walker Black. You know, and I, I guess I need to slow down and stop and tell you that Ed hadn't been over in five years. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the tragedy, <clears throat> excuse me, and the delusion of alcohol is having planned on doing all, buying all that different liquor and doing all those different things, I walk into the liquor store, go straight to the vodka counter and get 12 half a half a pints of vodka. I go right to the drugstore and get 24 Sikhanals. And I go home, and I have a, I drink a half a pint of the vodka, and I take 70 milligrams of Valium. They sent us all the Valium in the mail that we wanted at that time. Uh, and then I remember I hadn't eaten. I'd get into my car and go to church's fried chicken and get two wings, two peppers, and two rolls. Come home, eat the chicken, the pepper, and the rolls, and I would drink that other half of a half a pint of vodka and take 200 milligrams of Sikhanol. And I would pass out for four hours. And then I'd wake up in four hours and do it again, wake up and do it again. And on about the eighth day, I'd start passing blood from my mouth and rectum. And, and 
my stomach would be hurt, and I'd go up to my office and get a big bottle of Demerol, and I'd come home and give myself Demerol shots every three hours and pass out. You know, and after about two ways, the bleeding and the pain would stop, and I would start back to drinking again. Uh, and the last four, three years, every time I drank, I had to go to the hospital for dehydration or something. Uh, uh, August of 1975, my wife was going to take the kids home before school, and she had been kind of hinting that I might could have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> so I started to show this wonderful child of God uh, that, you know, I could quit drinking. And so she left on, uh, on a Friday, and I quit drinking, and on Sunday I went into full-blown DTs, uh, and I fell in the shower. Uh, and I broke both of my shoulders. I had a full-blown concussion. My blood pressure went up to greater than 300 over 150, and my uh, sugar went up to greater than 1,000. When I fell and I hit my head, I lost my gag reflex, and my boys tell me that they found me crawling around in my den, vomiting and almost about to drown on my own vomit just because I lost my gag reflex. I did a funny thing on uh, Sundays, uh, all of my... Uh, Junkie friends would come over, and I, you know, I'd write them those funny prescriptions for dilaudid, and they'd go sell them for fifty dollars and buy heroin. Uh, and I was showing them that I was a regular fellow. Uh, uh, and you know, and I, I, I sometimes I go and I hear folks talking about those dirty old drug addicts. But ladies and gentlemen, if it were not for those dirty old drug addicts coming to get a funny prescription that Sunday, I wouldn't be here. And I always have to give respect to those dirty old drug addicts. They kicked my door down, and they took me to St. Paul Hospital. And they, now they didn't hang around long. <laughs> but they got me there. And they kicked me out on the emergency dock. And, and two of the top doctors in Dallas said I'd be dead before morning. But I'm an alcoholic, and if you tell me to go right, I'll go left every time. Uh, they called my wife home because they knew I was going to die. And she decided to kill herself, but she called suicide prevention. And suicide prevention, I'll always hail, because they made her believe that I was an alcoholic and that uh, if she wanted to have any happiness, she needed to get her kids and get as far away from me as possible. But I talked her into giving me one more chance. And I had a solemn vow, and I realized that I was an alcoholic this time. And I said I'd never drink again, because I stayed in the hospital 30 days, totally psychotic, not knowing who, what, where, why, or how I was there. I got out, and in 10 days, I was drinking again. I woke up drunk that morning, lying next to my wife, and she was just doing her routine thing on a Sunday morning, getting the kids ready to go to Sunday school. She was cooking, getting them dressed, arguing with them. And I could smell the bacon, and I felt so good, and I knew I was home, and everything was just fine. I woke up and I looked at her and I said, what's happening, honey? And she just kept ironing. You know, I couldn't get her attention. I said, what's going on? And she just kept ironing. And, and she was doing something different this Sunday. She didn't usually pack a suitcase uh, you know, to go to church. You know, it, it's something a little strange here. And, and, and you know, I needed to get a conversation going uh, because I needed to get the heat off of me and blame her for something that happened 22 years ago. You know, and, and have her over there crying. But, but she wouldn't talk to me. She just kept ironing and she kept packing. And, and I, I'm a very dramatic alcoholic. I went to my mad act and she just kept packing. Went to my bad act and she just kept packing. Went to my crying act and she just kept packing. Went to my jovial act and she just kept packing. Things were getting serious. I had to pull the ace out of the hole so I went into my sexy act. You know? uh, uh, 
and she packed faster. <laughs> and uh, about that time, the phone rang. It was my brother from Chicago, and he said, Tuffy, that's my nickname. He said, if you're not up here on the next plane, I'll be down there for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, now, I had all these junkie friends. I had killed so many people that several of them had their own graveyard. You know, if you would have told me that any other time, I had to tell you about my bad friend. But for some reason, it was my time. And I said, okay, sir. Okay. I said, but I don't have any money. So he wired me $300. And folks, now you know that kind of delayed my trip a little. <laughs> Next time he sent a non-refundable ticket to will call. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and I was an hour late for the plane. The plane was an hour and a half late. You know, when your time comes, your time just comes, folks. Uh, I got on the plane. I didn't say hell mother and hell Mary and all of that. Matter of fact, I had 18 drinks from Dallas to Chicago, but it was the best 18 drinks I ever had because I fell off the plane. You know, when you walk down, well, in 75, we didn't, you didn't walk into the terminal. You had to walk down the stairs. I missed that last rung on the ladder, you know, and my brother, he's such a wimp. Uh, he called the hospital. The hospital said, bring him on, man. He said, half of them that come here are like that. You see, I hadn't planned on getting sober. My plans were to go over to my brother's house, drink him up for a couple of weeks, and cry a little and tell him I need some brotherly love and come on back to Texas and continue with my journey into insanity. You know, but, but he, he took me to the hospital. And for the next 10 days, I hated for my wife for calling my mother. I hated my mother for calling my brother. And I, I hated my brother for putting me in this godforsaken hospital. It was only the most expensive hospital in the world at that time that he paid for out of his pocket, you know. And on the 10th day, the little counselor, she came in my room. She wasn't but 23. And she said, Lewis, uh, I want you to go to group today. I said, I can't go to group. I'm in detox. And, you know, I love detox. You know, and y'all been to detox, you know, you shake just a little. They run to you with that volume. <laughs> you know, and, and she said, well, Lewis, if you don't come to group, we're going to bring the group in your room. Now, folks, I hadn't bathed shade for 10 days, and I still had just that much pride left. And so I got up and I went to group. And, they, and it's just as life is, they had a doctor there, and he was talking about the disease concept of alcoholism. And I'll ne I never think that a doctor could be an alcoholic. And I remember his closing. He said, we're not bad needing to get good. We're sick needing to get well. Folks, I just, I just took off on that statement. And I got in the program, got out in 26 days, came home on a midnight flight. I laughed at those old salesmen. You know, they were drunk and trying to get the attention of the waitress to get their drink first. I mean, the stewardess to get their drink first. And I was just happy, joyous, and free. Walked into my back gate at home, and all of the guilt, shame, remorse came back. And I stayed in my bed for nine days. On the ninth day, I decided to kill myself. And the little boy said, Louis, before you kill yourself, why don't you call AA like you promised those people that you would? By the way, I did promise to make 90 and 90. And I said, well, all right, call AA. And they said, well, Louis, why don't you come on? We're having a meeting tonight. I said, well, I'll be on down. And, and, and I got in my car and put my gun in the car. I was going to kill myself after the meeting. You know? and, uh, uh, I'm driving to the meeting. I'm driving along. And I said, oh, hell, this is the wrong part of town. They might not like folks with my concentration of melanin around there. You know? and, uh, and, and, and the little boy said, well, what difference does it make? They're gonna, you're going to kill yourself anyhow. <laughs> so I went to the meeting and I opened the door and I got a little whiff of urine. AA wasn't pretty in 75 like it is now. You know? We had one woman in the whole group. And the place was a mess. It smelled. But when I opened the door, a warmth seemed to come out to greet me, you know, and, 
And I walked in, and there were about 20 old hairy-legged men. Looked like they all were getting ready to die. You know, and, 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 you know, and I walked in, and each and every man stood up and looked me in the eye and shook my hand. And he said, welcome, Lewis. Glad to have you. Welcome, Lewis. Glad to have you. And a feeling just came over me that doesn't come until I tell the story. You know, they had the sands on the wall. Think, think, think. But for the grace of God, piss me off. I'm a college man, you know. And they got that kindergarten crap up there. Had the steps on the wall. It was, the steps were so small, I couldn't read them. I got one thing out of my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a feeling. I got a feeling that for the first time in my life, I belonged somewhere, you know. I just belonged somewhere. They laughed and they talked. They, you know, they said, Lewis, come to 90 meetings in 90 days. I made 120 meetings in 60 days. I got addicted to AA like I'm addicted to anything that changes the way in which I feel. Oh, we got started. We went to work. We started halfway houses in the southern section of the city. We talked hospitals into having detox. And after five years, life was just going great. You know, I had the internal revenue, you know, on a paid back schedule. You know, uh, the kids were inviting their friends over to the house again. My wife, Erlene, and I could ride in the same car for 30 minutes without pulling guns and knives on each other. You know, life was just fine. Life was great. And I woke up one Monday morning and, 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 and the little voice said, Lewis, everything is going fine. Why don't you just kill yourself? How many of y'all are like that? You know, you know, when things are just going fine, I just want to die. But you know, when things are going to hell in a handbasket and everything is going wrong, I'm alive, I'm alert, and I'm cutting deals. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm something, I'm somebody when things are going bad like that. You know, and, 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 I, and I said, and then the voice said, well, why don't you call your sponsor? Call my sponsor. And my sponsor said, hello, Lewis. I said, hi, fine. He said, what's wrong? And I said, um, I've got this and this problem. He said, Lewis, have you done the steps? And I just hung up on that bastard. You, know? <laughs> you see, by this time, I was Mr. AA. I was Mr. African-American AA all over Dallas. I, you know, I did the steps, and I was just so wonderful to everyone. And the audacity of him to ask me if I had done the steps. So I went to another sponsor, and he said, Lewis, which one of those steps are giving you trouble? By the way, I had 13 sponsors at that time. Uh, I don't recommend that for me. Uh, and I went to another sponsor. And he said, Lewis, which one of those steps are giving you trouble? And so I hung up on him also. Called the third sponsor, my original sponsor, a rabbi in Chicago where I went to treatment. And he said, Lewis, uh, how are you? When's the last time you worked the steps? And I told the rabbi the truth that I hadn't worked the steps. I told him that I had taken the steps, cross-referenced them with the Bible and philosophy and medicine in order to teach these poor people the steps. But I never bothered to take time to do them myself. He said, well, Lewis, either get a plane and come up here to Chicago or go to somebody down there that you trust, somebody that's not impressed with you being a doctor. You take a big book, he take a big book, put a dictionary between you, and y'all do the steps from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, what a unique idea. You know, uh, uh, and I said, all right. I, of course, I looked around for about a couple of years, you know, <laughs> trying to find somebody good enough, you know, to do the steps with me, and I finally wound up with the same sponsor that I had. <laughs> uh, he's a plumber, and uh, we'd get together on Saturday, and I'll always be grateful to Sam. He would take an hour off his job, supposedly, but it would wind up being three. 
Uh, and of course, we had to build buildings and build some hospitals and get rich together uh, within 10 minutes. And then we'd say, well, let's get started. First time I went to sell, he said, Lewis, break, it up, break the book open. And you always guess, I broke the book open to page, what, 58? Uh, how it works. I wanted to play a little ping pong. I wanted to get these steps over with. I wanted to play a little ping pong that afternoon. And he said, well, Lewis, what's an alcoholic? I said, it's a person who drinks too much. He said, well, what's the solution? I said, not to drink. And he said, Lewis, when the last time you had a drink? I said, five years, ten days. You know, I had it down to the millisecond at that time. And he said, well, what you doing here? I said, well, I'm in trouble. He said, what kind of trouble are you in? I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, well, what are you talking about? You said, an alcoholic is a person who drinks too much. The solution is not to drink. You haven't had a drink in over five years. And he said, well, what's the problem? And you see, folks, that was the first time that anyone made me realize that alcohol and drugs were not my problem. He said, Lewis, turn to page 64. And y'all read it with me. But by the way, I need to make a little confession. Uh, I'm a shrink or a psychiatrist, and my subspecialty is substance abuse. I, I studied this substance abuse all over the United States, Canada, and I've been to England and France. And I've studied at some of the most prestigious places that you'll find. But ladies and gentlemen, I have not found anything or anyone that can explain alcoholism and the recovery thereof better than this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, so you know, just back it open to page 64. And it says, though our decision to quit drinking was a vital and crucial step, it goes on to say, uh, our liquor, come on, help me, was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. Our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. Recovery, as defined in the book, is to be returned to a balanced state of mind and body. You know, that's what recovery in AA means. Uh, now, all my life, I thought that if I could just quit drinking, my problems would be over. But I don't know about anyone in this room, when I quit drinking, my problems, you know, quadruple because I became aware at that time. You know, and, and, and drinking wasn't my problem. You see, I, my personality is so immature that I had to have peace of mind at all times and at any cost. And I wouldn't want to drink, but I would get in a place and I would lose this peace of mind and become anxious. And I couldn't be immature. I couldn't live with that emotional pain. And my unconscious mind, would I'd pick up a drink and I'd take one, I'm only going to have two. Sit off the crave and go through the well-known sprays of spree and I'm off and running for another 10 or 11 days. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be like my sisters and brothers and have one or two drinks out of a can of 3-2 beer. You know, but I just could not do that. Once I started, I simply could not stop. You know, I thought that alcohol was my problem, but it wasn't. Now, he made me turn over to page six, by the way, he made me read that 25 times. Uh, you know, then he made me turn over to page 62. Um, and on page 62, it tells me about my problem. Now, 
Up until this time, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I loved everybody in AA. If you said you were in AA, we were friends. You didn't lie. You couldn't go wrong. You couldn't do anything with me. But here we come. We got to this 62 in the book. Uh, and this is when I began to get a little suspicious. Uh, uh, and the book says, selfishness. Se come on with me. Come on now. Self-centeredness that we think is the root of our trouble, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-peaking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. You know? Selfishness, wanting things to go my way. Self-centeredness, thinking the whole world should evolve around my wants. And this is the first time anybody had ever questioned me about my problem, you know? Uh, and, and, and it was kind of embarrassing. And then, then he made me read the second uh, paragraph. And this really just was too much, you know? Come on, read it with me. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run right, though we usually don't think so. Now he's dipping in my business, you know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's just not fair for him to blame all of this stuff on me. And then he made me turn over a little further, and, 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 and on page 64, it goes on to say, it's talking about this inventory that I hated so much. We did exactly the same things with our lives. We took an inventory. We took stock honestly. That's rather embarrassing to think that one of us would lie. Uh, um, you know. And it says, first we searched out the flaws in our own makeup. Well, folks, I've got an MD degree, but I've got a PhD degree in blaming my faults on my wife and her flaws. You know, uh, you know uh, being convinced that self, being convinced that self manifested in various ways is what had defeated me. And they wanted me to look at the three manifestations of self, resentment, fear, and sex. You know, and, 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 and I don't think I was ready. And, and I said, well, what's the solution, Sam? He said, Sam said, the solution is have this spiritual experience, changing your thinking, your feelings, and your eyes. I said, well, how do you have it? He said, Lewis, you have to take the 12 steps. He said, Lewis, the 12 steps are sacred. He said, they are not, uh, this is the only thing in the big book that we give freely to any and everybody else. He said, before you can take the 12 steps, you have to know what each word of these steps mean. He said, before you can move to the next word, you've got to tell me what the first word means. So he said, now, Lewis, you've been to college a long time. You're what my grandmother calls an educated fool. He said, so <laughs> we're going to break these steps down for you. He said, in step one, we're going to break it down to part A and part B. Part A is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. We, and, and Sam said, Lewis, you better put I there. Because knowing you, if it's a we, you'll find a way to blame somebody else. <clears throat> admit it. He said, he said, Lewis, what does admit mean? You know, I didn't know what admit meant. I gave him one of those long medical school definitions that had absolutely of no value to anyone. Uh, uh, said that. I was powerless. Lewis, what does powerless mean? Another long definition. Um, I had lost control of over alcohol. I said, what al Lewis, what's alcohol? I said, oh, it's a brown, noxious, or white, noxious liquid. So in other words, when I reread the first half of step one, it's no big deal. All I'm saying is I said that I had lost control over pouring this liquid in my mouth. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that does not sound like much. 
But to me, that was everything. For me to say that I can't control pouring a liquid in my mouth was almost too much for me to stand. And then the second part is that my life, life, what's life? I, I didn't know, gave him long definitions. And Lewis, nobody knows what life means, but they all agree on one thing. Life means at least what you think, what you feel, and how you act uh, had become unmanageable. Take that word unmanageable out and give me another word uncontrollable. So when I read the second half of the first step, it says, and that my thinking, feelings, and action, I had lost control over them also. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this to me is total defeat. It's total surrender when I can really do that. When I can really say I don't have any power over pouring this physical substance in my mouth, but not only that, I can't even control how I think about it. You know, that's defeat. That's death. You know, that's and to admit to that is, it's not America. It, you know, it, it's unpatriotic <laughs> to admit to some crap like that. You know, I'm an American. I, you know, in high school commencement speakers say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, hook your wagon to a star. You can be anything you want. No matter what color you are, what religion you are, this is America. You can be in it. I believe that crap. I believe it heart and soul. And then I come to A and you tell me to turn it over. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and then little Al and I said, well, Lewis, and, uh, uh, once you take step two, you'll uh, understand. Step two. How many of y'all love step two? Uh, I used to just hate it. Uh, li listen to the sentence structure came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The syntax is improper. You know, uh, you know uh, uh, the modifiers are, you know, uh, are not exactly right. Uh, and he said, well, Lewis, tell you what we're going to We're going to break this step down into three parts for your smart self. You know, it says part one is came to believe. Part two, that a power greater than our seven. Part three is could restore us to sanity. Came to believe. Came as a verb. Verb is a word of action. Belief is my unthought my unconscious thought process that's been occurring over the years. So what we're saying is, came, I got to take some action and change my belief system. My belief system was totally negative. Now I got to change it to something positive. But the sentence was, I just wanted to vomit. They didn't tell you that I, I, I'm an associate professor at the local medical school and I teach a half a day on Wednesday. And when I go out there, they give me a starch white jacket and I put it on, got my name here so my head don't get so big I forget who I am. Uh, and, and can you imagine me walking around the halls and one other professor said, Dr. Dear, how you doing? I said, wonderful, wonderful. He said, how are things going to just uh, absolutely divine? Uh, well, doctor, we understand you're an alcoholic. I said, this is true. You know, for some reason, my voice get deeper when I'm at the medical school. Yeah. And, and, and he went on to say, he said, well, well, let's understand you've been sober for greater than 20 years. I said, that is right. And he said, well, Lewis, could you tell us how you're able to stay sober? Well, folks, I can't tell these people, oh, I'm doing it by just came in to believe that a power greater than myself. You can't tell medical school professors that, you know? You know, so, so I came to believe. Cease from Canada tells a wonderful story 
about that. He states that there was a little Canadian boy who went out into the woods to play every day, and every day he'd get lost. One day when he came back, his mom said, son, if you go out in the woods and get lost tomorrow, get on your knees, say a prayer, stick your hand out and ask God to lead you out. Next day, a little boy went out in the woods, got lost, got on his knees, said, oh God, I'm lost, please lead me out, and he stuck his hand out. About that time, a bird came along and did number two in his hand. You know, the little boy just threw it out and rubbed his hand in the sand, and he got back down on his knees. This boy was a pre-alcoholic, <clears throat> and he said, oh Heavenly Father, great architect of the universe, no of all things from Alpha to Omega. He said, please hear my virgin cry. And he stuck his hand out and he said, hey man, I'm lost. Don't hand me no shit this time. You know, and, and basically, you know, and, and, and basically, that was my entire thought process. I thought everybody was trying to hand me some shit. You know, and, 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 and if you didn't hand me some, guess what? I would create my own. You know, I, I, I've been married to the same lady for 43 years, you know, and <clears throat> thank you. And I can get up in the morning and I could have gotten a standing ovation for my horizontal nocturnal performance the night before, you know, and I can get up just as happy and go into the restroom and reach for my toothpaste. And I just starts there. She's been squeezing it in the middle. And all I all know is both be squeezed on the end. I reach for my soap, and she's left it in the sink, and it's mushy. And you know what that is, and I've been trying to teach her. And I sit on my throne and take care of my little business. And when I'm business is over, I reach for my paper, and I'll just be damned. She's got it coming off the top, and all I all know is supposed to come off the bottom. You know? and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I, and, and, you know, all of a sudden, I begin to say, what is she trying to do to me? You know, uh, why is she acting like this? You know, Mama told me not to marry her in the first place. You know, uh, you know and, and, and it starts and it goes on and on and on. And sometimes I just have to stop my car on the way to work and start my day over again. You see, it, it's just, it never ends, folks. It never ends. Uh, so I, we went on to say, uh, came to believe, you know, Ladies and gentlemen, over the last 15, 20, 25 years, I've learned how to get along with each and everybody in this whole world, regardless as to what faith, what color, what kind, creed, or whatever. I can get along with anybody for an hour. Uh, and, and, <laughs> no, and, that, and that's pretty good because I usually dash in and dash out. Uh, and and, and it, it's just a, a, a wonderful thing. I could get along with everybody on the planet but one, and that was my wife. And I don't know if any of y'all ever experienced this. Uh, it's just something, and I don't know what it was, but, you know, it's just crazy. You know, and I wanted to get along with her so bad. Uh, this is a woman that would wake me up when I had sleep apnea so that I wouldn't die. This is the woman uh, that would, um, when I would get up out of the bed to go to the restroom and walk around to her side of the bed and kind of make a mistake as to where I was and uh, kind of use the restroom there. This, this is the woman that uh, when I would mistake her closet and pee on her shoes, uh, funny thing, I never peed on my shoes. This is a woman that when my patients would call and they were having babies and, and she would call 
the guy that would be covering for me whether he was covering or not because I would be lying there drunk. Uh, God, I wanted to love her and support her, but it was just something. You know, and the only problem later on we found out was I just wanted her to, you know, to think, feel, and do what I wanted her to think, feel, and do. And she wanted me to think, feel, and do what she thought, felt, and did. That was our only problem. You know, we, we, we didn't get along. We couldn't see things, you know, separately. She's a woman. I'm a man. We're different, y'all. Uh, and ladies, if you find a man to see things exactly like you do, you're being conned. Because we, you know, we don't see things the same way, y'all. We just don't do that. You know, uh, uh, my wife and I can't see things physically the same. I remember I got an, I got an opportunity to go to Paris, France, free. And my wife and I were headed to the airport. And while we were there, passed a the car. And I said, honey, did you see that beautiful light blue Lexus? She said, yes, it was a beautiful car, Lewis, but it was dark gray. I said, no, darling, it was light blue. She said, bang, bang, no, it was dark gray. And I said, well, all right. And we didn't speak until we got to New York City. And we had, you know, and we had to speak then because nobody else would speak to us. <laughs> yeah. Went on to Paris, France, walking down this wonderful street. This, what is it, the Chandelier? You know, and it was a breezy day, 10, 15 miles an hour, 72 degrees, bomb overcast, walked by the Eiffel Tower, just, life was just wonderful. Walked across past the path of this 5'11", uh, statuous French lady. Uh, and I don't allow myself uh, to gaze, uh, you know, in those directions, being a, you know, being a Christian, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, but I got this brain, and I need to teach a little neuroanatomy, and part of our brain is something called the basal ganglia, in the basal ganglia we have something called a P wave, now the function of the P wave is to scan the external environment looking for some unique and dynamic uh, stimuli, now the lady was wearing a Gloria von Furstenberg dress that tied and wrapped around and tied in the front. And it kind of was open, you see. And as we approached her, a gust of wind blew the dress open. And she didn't have a slip on. And I, um, then a Christian, I'd probably look for two seconds. You know how these P waves are. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I just looked. By two seconds, I just kind of noticed that she had on long black fishnet stockings, that they had a seam up the back, you know, that she had on, excuse me, that she had on pink panties, uh, panties with double-stitched white taffeta lace, you know, and that she had on a red garter belt located 17 centimeters below the synthesis pubis. You know, you know two seconds. And, 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 and a warmth came over me. You know, and, and, I, and I began to think of the wonders of the universe and, and, and I began to think my 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 isn't God wonderful you know? I, I said he can just take bone fat muscle nerve blood and skin and create a thing of architectural beauty and pleasure forever thank you thank you thank you and we walked on down the street halfway down there early and hunched me in the side she said Lewis I said yes dear she said did you see that bitch? This is a Christian woman. <laughs> and, and, but I didn't ruin the moment, folks. Because I can ask a question, and it's just like putting a knife through your heart. 
And I just let God lead me. And I didn't say a word. I got up the next morning as usual, and I went down to have my coffee and to meditate, which is the biggest lie in life. I just go downstairs to get away from her to think about how wonderful I am. (laughs) And I was walking back up to the room, and the little boy said, Well, Lewis, why don't you take her a cup of coffee? Now, folks, I don't ever do this then. You know, and I said, I'll get a cup of coffee. I walked a little further and said, why don't you get a donut, dude? And I said, well, all right, I'll get a two. And I walked back up to that room, and she was watching Robert Schuler on some kind of international wave or something. And, and, and as I walked up, uh, I, I, I gave her the coffee and one of the donuts. And, you know, and she looked up at me, and as if it were though all of those years of strife between us just melted away. coffee and a donut. See, God has been very good to us. Since I quit drinking, I work 16, 17 hours a day. And I work in a place where I am really, really needed. I have more business than I know what to do. God has been really good in that arena. You know, and and, and we've had cars and boats and exotic trips and, and everything. But until I gave her that dumb coffee and that donut, nothing was ever good enough. The coffee, you know, the mink coat wasn't black enough. The, the car wasn't red enough. The, the trip wasn't long enough. You know, it, 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 nothing happened until she looked up at me and said, thank you. And all of that stuff just melted away. You see, came to believe means I got to change my belief system about her. She didn't mind. She loved to argue and fight with me. But she just, I couldn't handle it. See? And when God gave me the idea to change, I needed to take the action to change. Not her. I needed to take that action. And the action was to use what I was taught in Business 101. In order to get along, I had to get out of myself and get into her in order to understand, not to manipulate and control as I always did. I had to get out of me, get in her, in order to understand. And folks, if any of y'all are having trouble, to me that was the hardest thing in the world, but the easiest thing in the world was to get out of me, get into her, or get out of me, or get into anybody, and get out of that manipulating and control factor and get into just totally accepting the person as they are, ladies and gentlemen. Love and understanding is accepting exactly as they are. Exactly. Uh, came that a power greater than myself, of course, you know that had to be God. Nobody could be greater than me than God. Now, my children, you know, when I came in, my children had two paper routes and I had two doctor's degrees, and they were making $9 a month more than I was. You know, <laughs> uh, could, I'm so grateful to God tonight that it said could and not would. You know, could, you know, I have this defiant streak within me. 
You tell me to go right. I, I, I'll never forget. Again, I went over to the mall today, and I thought I was getting better. I went over to the mall, and I asked somebody, how do you get to the Walden Bookstore? I wanted to buy the Velveteen Rabbit. And I asked, how do you get to the Walden Bookstore? The lady told me, Louis, just go all the way down to the end of the corridor. It's a dead end. And turn left and walk about uh, 100 yards, and it's there. And I thought for a minute, and I walked off, and then I came back. And then I said, well, couldn't I go uh, to the right here? And then, you know, it's just something about me. Folks, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never had a desire to smoke, but twice in my life. I can't smoke, don't like to smoke, but I wanted to smoke twice. Can y'all figure out what days they were? Yeah, the first day was time was in the day... It was in November the 17th, 1987, the first day of the what? Great American Smokeout. You know, everybody, you know, everybody saying, don't smoke, don't smoke. I wanted to smoke bad. And then by mistake, my wife and I stayed in a non-smokers hotel in Houston, Texas, and I was walking up and down the halls looking for a cigarette machine. You know, it's just simply psychotic the way I am. Uh, restore us to sanity. Sanity, I thought, meant crazy, of course, but it doesn't. It's from the Greek balance, centos. You know, and I lost the balance in my thinking, feeling, and action in step one. Now it's telling me if I do this, I can get it back in step two. Step three is to saying that I can't handle my life. I need to turn it over to God. Step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine is how I turn it over to God. And step 10, 11, and 12 is how I keep it turned over to God on a daily basis. You know, how are things today? <clears throat> well, for the first 18 years of the program, uh, life was just wonderful. Life was good. Uh, I knew all the answers. Uh, don't drink, go to meetings, and read books. Uh, my mom's, Louis, your mother's dying. Just don't drink, go to a meeting, read the book. Didn't matter what was going down, don't drink, read the meeting, go to the book. Stupidity is fun. Stupidity, you know, is wonderful, folks. I mean, I thought I knew the answers to everything. So I decided to go to Egypt uh, and go with 57 of my academic brothers and sisters and we were going to study anthropology up and down the Nile River. Uh, so I went to Egypt, and I had been used to an alcoholic culture. Well, if you're not, if you haven't ever been locked in to an academic culture, folks, it's not a beautiful thing. Uh, <laughs> You know, the day starts off with somebody making a negative statement when somebody will trump that and the third person will get up and act it out. You know, and about the ninth day, I couldn't go any further. I withdrew to my room. You know, you see, at 11, I stopped feeling. I just stopped feeling, and I started performing. And I, st I had pushed down all those feelings from 11. First, I did it by taking tests. God has given me a gift to take tests, and I take tests. Then I got in the alcohol at age 18 uh, and I stayed in the alcohol until 36 at 36 I got into AA and until I went to Egypt in 95 uh, alcohol and everything for 18 years that was my life went to Egypt and I got in the, and, and I, I withdrew to my room I didn't have anything but the 12 and 12 in the big book and I read and I read it and I finally read step 12 and it says practice these principles in all my affairs so I put my anger resentments fear and sex into the first half of the step of the first step and began to work the steps on them and I'll tell you what ladies and gentlemen 
it didn't go away in 10 days, and it hasn't gone away now. Uh, it's still there, but it's so much better because I'm working on it now where I wasn't working on it then. Uh, life is just good. All my life, I thought that I had the intelligence to figure things out. Well, I figured them out, but I was still very unhappy. Uh, today, I can stand here and tell you that the greatest thing I ever figured out was that I need you that I need you. I can remember 22 years of sobriety going to a meeting, and I said, I got a problem with resentments today. And they looked at me, and they said, resentment? You've got 22 years. You must not be working your program. And you can be guaranteed I never mentioned a problem in that meeting again. You know? <laughs> I would wait till the end of the meeting, and I would pull everything and summarize everything and give a philosophy on it. You know, and, and, and I began to kind of perform in AA. And folks, please don't. Old dudes like me, please don't abandon us. That statement that we need you more than you need us is true. You see, we are built so that we cannot look at ourselves. See, if I could look at myself and see all of my shortcomings, I would put that pistol to my head and blow my brains away. As wonderful as I think I am, uh, you know, and, and I look at, I still got the same basic urges that I had when I was nine years old. You know, and Mama told me that, boy, if God's going to get you for that and, and he's going to drive you blind. And, and, and uh, I, well, I believe Mama because I was wearing bifocals then. Anyhow, you know, uh, uh, so, you see, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, um, I, I, just, I just had this, this, this thing, and, 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 and I, I, I thought that I didn't need anybody, and I found out that we need you, we old-timers need you, because when I can see a problem in you, I have that problem, because I can't see something in you that I haven't. What do my friends in NA say? If you spot it, you got it. You know, uh, I can't see that. You know, if you come up to me talking Russian, I can't see Russian because I don't know Russian. But if you talk to me about a resentment, my head is bowing. You talk to me about lust, mm-hmm, I know what you're talking about, Dad. You know, and I, and, and, and I can relate, as the kids say. You know, because I have that same thing in me. And the only way that I can work on me is listening to you. You make me aware of what's going on in me. So please. Don't leave me. You know, and I thought I said this, but <clears throat> in Bill's last saying, uh, some of his last sayings, he said that we need each other. And Bill was saying that uh, we really need a friend. And a friend is a person that, you know, that um, what to say he's a friend is a person that you have something in common with. Jesus Christ said a friend is a person that will give up his life for another. Now, that doesn't mean physically. You know, we all have two lives. I have this personality that I put on when I go to the med school on Wednesday. And then I have another personality that I put on when I go to the 24-hour club after I leave the medical school. And the guy said, Lewis, there's a drunk downstairs throwing up. Go on there and help him. And I take off my big book brother's suit and I go downstairs. And I said, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about my three DTs. You know, that's a lie. But Socrates said that a friend who has something so much in common that they have the same soul. Two people and one soul. And I truly think that Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, is equivalent to all three of those definitions. Bill said that we already know everything in our head. But I'm a scientist. 
So I figure that I've been taught all my life that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So I figured that I could get stuff out of my head down to my heart, and I didn't need you. I didn't need anybody. But Bill said we must have a friend in order to get stuff from our heads to our hearts. He said because things must go through this pathway. <clears throat> Bill said things must go from my head to your heart and from your heart to my heart, from my head to your heart, and from my heart, I mean, and from your heart back to my heart. I need you. You see, if I have a friend, then I don't have to be lonely anymore. And if I don't have to be alone, then I don't have to fear. And if I don't have to fear, then I don't have to have a resentment. If I don't have to resent, I don't have to hate. And if I don't have to hate, then I think that I can be exactly what God wanted me to be. And that's simply to love. You know, simply to love. The steps when I was born, if you really want to see an example of true love, go to a well baby nursery. After, listen to me good now, after they have cleaned, fed, and burped the babies. You know, and just tickle the baby on the breastbone. It'll laugh, it'll giggle, it'll coo. The baby don't care whether you're fat or skinny, black or brown, white, green, yellow. You can even have bad breath. And a, you know, and a baby will love you just the same. You see, I believe that a baby is the closest thing to God that we're going to find on this earth. But in three days, we parents take that baby home. And we teach that baby all of the fears, you know, that we were taught. We take the baby to church. We teach them to fear God. We, and all the kids come around and teach them collective fears of the whole community. And pretty soon, this baby is beginning to resent, and pretty soon, the child will hate. I... Uh, we had our first grandchild two months ago, and I looked at that little innocent child, and I just said to myself, I know that my son and my daughter-in-law are going to teach this little baby all of that weird, screwed-up stuff I taught them. You know, and, and, and I began to feel sorry for the baby. <laughs> you see, in life with me, all my life and my problems have always been about fear. People just stacked it up and stacked it up and stacked it up. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and practice the 12 steps, and that is the way that I begin to get rid of all of this fear and all of these resentments, and I became teachable. I became lovable again. Thank you. Thank you.